Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us out this morning. Thank you for a new day. We thank you for the blessings that we have received this week. I pray that you would speak through me now. May the message be clear, and may we have a greater understanding for the special movement that you have raised up that we have the privilege of being part of. So we thank you for this opportunity to learn more and be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation here in our morning meeting. And today the message is entitled, The Mystery of God Finished. Now, we covered on Monday morning an overview of the sanctuary through the book of Revelation. Then we focused especially on the message of Jesus to the seventh church, the Laodicean church, on Tuesday. Yesterday we looked at the seals and what's taking place in the most holy place during the seals. Today we are going to look at what happens during the seventh trumpet especially, but what leads into the seventh trumpet. So we're going to take a brief look at the trumpets as well as um, primarily Revelation chapter 10. So the title of the message today is The Mystery of God Finished. Now it's helpful to have an understanding of the setting of Revelation chapter 10. This takes place right after the sixth trumpet ends in Revelation chapter 9, and it's before the sounding of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 verses 15 through 19. So what is the timing of the sixth trumpet? If you understand the fulfillment of prophecy, this sixth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9 verse 15 describes that it would come to an end after a rule of one hour, one day, one month, and one year. Now, before I go too much further into that, just to give you a brief understanding of the trumpets, and the reason why I say this is that there are some reinterpretation of the trumpets going on in Adventism now that are not particularly helpful and that do contradict inspiration. But the historicist understanding of the trumpets is that the first four trumpets that you read about in Revelation chapter 8 describe judgments that God pours out upon the Western Roman Empire, especially for its persecution of the saints. We saw the persecution of the saints and the seals, and then the trumpets describe the, or the, the judgments that those who persecute the saints receive. So the fall of the Western Roman Empire takes place in 476 AD. Then we see the rise of Muhammad and Islam in the fifth trumpet, and we see that the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are connected with the first, second, and third woes. And so the fifth and sixth trumpets and the first and second woe are connected to the, the Islamic scourge on the Eastern Roman Empire. And we see that the, the fifth and sixth trumpets culminate, or the sixth trumpet culminates with this prophecy of reigning for one hour, one day, one month, and one year. 
Now, this sets the time frame for Revelation 10. Um, Josiah Litch, a Millerite preacher, published a study that accurately foretold the fall of the Ottoman Empire using the principles of historicism. So this was very interesting. Ellen White quotes this in the book Great Controversy. Here we read, in the year 1840, another remarkable fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Now notice Ellen White calls this a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. Because there are some today who say, oh, the, the traditional understanding of Adventism about the fifth and sixth trumpets is wrong. We have a new enlightened view. Ellen White calls it a remarkable fulfillment. And this is how she describes it. Two years before Josiah Litch, one of the leading ministers preaching the second advent, published an exposition of Revelation 9 predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So this is around 1838. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown, quote, in 1840, sometime in the month of August, end quote. And only a few days previous to its accomplishment, he wrote, allowing the first period of 150 years to have been exactly fulfilled before Diakosis ascended the throne by permission of the church. Now, I better stop there, because you may not know what that's referring to if you've not studied the trumpets. In, on July 27, 1299, the Ottomans first attacked the the Eastern Roman Empire. They entered into the territory in 1299. 150 years later, in 1449, the Eastern Roman Emperor, Diakosis, asked permission of the Ottomans to take the throne. Now, what kind of a ruler are you if you need permission to be the king? So, that's a fulfillment of prophecy in 1449. That's the end of the fifth trumpet, beginning of the sixth trumpet. So there's 150 years or five months for the fifth trumpet. Then you get to the sixth trumpet, and that's the beginning of the one hour, one day, one month, and one year. So continuing, it says, allowing the first period of 150 years to have been exactly fulfilled before Diakosis ascended the throne by permission of the Turks, and that the 391 years, 15 days, commenced at the close of the first period, it will end on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople may be expected to be broken, and this, I believe, will be found to be the case. So you go July 27, 1299, to 150 years later, that's 1449, and then you have this prophecy of one hour, one day, one month, and one year. Now, I don't have it all diagrammed out here on the PowerPoint, but if you just add the numbers pretty quickly, there's 360 days in a biblical year, so one year is 360 days, but if it's a day for a year, now you have 360 years, and then one month is 30 days, so that's 30 years, so now you've gotten from 360 to 390. A day is a year, so now that gets you to 391. An hour, if you do the calculation, you have 24 hours in a day, and if you do 360 divided by 24, you get 15. That's just a real quick math calculation. 391 years, 15 days. Well, it just so happens if you start on July 27, 1299, go 150 years later, and now you're at July 27, 1449, and you add 391 years and 15 days to that time period, that takes you to August 11, 1840. And guess what happens on August 11, 1840? Ellen White says, Great Controversy 335, at the very time specified. 
Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the protection of the Allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of Christian nations. Notice the bolded statement. The event exactly fulfilled the prediction. On August 11, 1840, the Turks, they, they were in trouble, they were under pressure, they were being attacked by Egypt, and they needed protection from the attacks of Egypt, and so they asked for help from the European powers. And they received that help, they turned over assistance, so to speak. They said, we're under your control and protection now on August 11, 1840. When it became known, multitudes were convinced of the correctness of the principles of prophetic interpretation adopted by Miller and his associates, and a wonderful impetus was given to the Advent movement. Men of learning and position united with Miller both in preaching and in publishing his views, and from 1840 to 1844, the work rapidly extended. Now, my personal conviction and belief is that the fall of the Ottoman Empire on August 11, 1840, then gives rise to the mighty angel of Revelation 10 who comes down from heaven clothed with a cloud. So re the setting of Revelation 10 is 1840 because this is when the Millerite movement takes off. You have this fulfillment of the prophecy of the Ottoman Empire. At the very same time, William Miller preaches at the Chardon Street Chapel in Boston, Massachusetts, and the mover and shaker of the Millerite movement known as Joshua Himes meets William Miller. Now, he's not the mover and shaker yet, but he meets William Miller, and he hears the message preached, and he says, do you really believe what you are preaching? And William Miller says, of course I do. I've been preaching this since 1831. Then, and Joshua Heim says, then why are you so not strategic in your preaching of this message? You're just going from small church to small church, and the big cities haven't even heard this message yet. So Joshua Himes effectively became the general manager of the Advent movement at that point. And then you had all of these newspapers spawning off. You had the Signs of the Times and the Midnight Cry, and you had newspapers in New York and Philadelphia and other places that got the message out there. So this fulfillment of the fall of the Ottoman Empire coincided with the message taking off. Recent books have discarded this prophecy. Some teach that this doesn't speak teach a specific time prophecy, but just a specific hour. But Ellen White calls it a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy, and she says the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. There's been some good study on this recently as well by some scholars. If you're interested, I can talk to you about it later. Now, some make the argument who say Josiah Litch discarded his understanding of this prophecy, and he's the one who came up with it in the first place. And you know what? He also discarded his belief of the 2300 days. So are we going to throw out the 2300 days because Josiah Litch discarded his view of the 2300 days? Obviously not. The servant of the Lord gives us a higher understanding of the importance of this prophecy, despite the fact that the original messenger threw it out. Now, let's... That sets the stage for Revelation chapter 10, 1840. This is when I believe the mighty angel comes down. We see in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, 
clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. This mighty angel comes down from heaven. I think we know that this mighty angel is Jesus Christ. And we get this from comparing Scripture with Scripture. We go back to Revelation chapter 1, which is at the beginning of the churches, and we see very similar language to Jesus, where we see that he is clothed with a garment, that his head is white as snow, his hair is as white as snow, his eyes are like flames of fire, his feet burn like brass, his voice sounds like many waters. We saw on Monday that at the beginning of the seven trumpets, we see Jesus as an angel with a censer in his hand, standing at the altar of incense, and now that he is moving from the holy place to the most holy place, he is the mighty angel. So we see Jesus coming down from heaven. What is taking place here in Revelation chapter 10 is so important that Jesus doesn't give this work to just any angel. He, the mighty angel, comes down to do this work himself. This is the time period of 1840, and it is the time for the proclamation of the second coming of Jesus to the then-known world. And this work is so important that Jesus himself comes down to oversee the guidance of this movement. We see that he is clothed with a cloud. What is the significance of being clothed with a cloud? Now, here's the thing. Everything that you see in this description describes an aspect of Christ's work that helps us to understand what he is doing. He's a mighty angel coming down from heaven. So ha this has the authority of heaven. And he's clothed with a cloud. The pre-incarnate Christ was covered in the cloud over the most holy place in the earthly sanctuary. Go to Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. That's the first verse that we're going to look at. Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. And here we read, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, from before the people. So you see sanctuary language when describing Christ clothed with a cloud. So the first thing that you see, if this mighty angel who meets the specifications of Jesus Christ is clothed with a cloud, it takes you back in your mind to the sanctuary. But not only that, in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, it says, The Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place. Now, if you read the context, this is the most holy place. Within the veil before the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. There's no doubt about that. Which is upon the Ark that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Now, notice this. 
this mighty angel is, comes down from heaven. He's clothed with a cloud. That reminds us that there was the cloud above the sanctuary. But not only that, when he was covered with a cloud, he was above the mercy seat in the most holy place. So if you simply study this descriptive term to understand what Jesus is doing, this tells you that the sanctuary message is coming back into relevance about the time of 1840, and Jesus has designs to move into the most holy place above the mercy seat, just as he was covered with a cloud back in the time of the Israelites in the wilderness. Revelation 10 is describing the movement of Jesus from the holy place to the most holy place. Not only is he clothed with a cloud, it says a rainbow was upon his head. Now, what is the significance of this rainbow? If we go to Genesis chapter 9, if you read verses 9 through 17, I'm not going to take the time to read all those verses. The rainbow was a symbol of the covenant that God made with Noah that he would not destroy the earth again by a flood. So God uses a rainbow as a symbol of making a covenant. But that's not the only time we see a rainbow in the Bible. We see it here again in Revelation 10, but it's not the only place even in the book of Revelation that we see a rainbow. So we see that a rainbow is used to make a covenant, but we also find the rainbow in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, where you see a rainbow about the throne of God. So here's the thing. Jesus is clothed with a cloud. And he was clothed with a cloud in the earthly sanctuary above the mercy seat. But he also has a rainbow above his head, meaning that he is going to renew the covenant with his people from his throne. And if you remember, the throne in Daniel 7 verse 9 has wheels of fire, meaning that it can move. So the cloud shows that Jesus is moving from the holy place to the most holy place. That means the throne is going to move from the holy place to the most holy place. And in the most holy place, with that rainbow above his head, God is going to renew the covenant with his people. Now, what is this covenant? Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. You can also find it in the book of Jeremiah. Let me read to you what this covenant says in Hebrews 8, 10 through 13. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more in that he saith a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So God is renewing the covenant. The, the rainbow is a symbol that he is renewing the covenant with his people. And the cloud shows that he's moving from the holy place to the most holy place. The throne is moving from the holy place to the most holy place. He's renewing a covenant, but that covenant is the law of God. And it just so happens that in below the mercy seat, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Old Testament, the tables of stone containing the law of God were in the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now, it would only make sense that the covenant would be renewed if you're moving from the holy place to the most holy place because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, when Jesus moves from the holy place to the most holy place to remind his people of his covenant and of his law, wouldn't it make sense that there would be a renewal and an understanding of the Sabbath. Because the fourth commandment in the 10 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath had been forgotten over all those centuries and the great falling away and the great apostasy. The Sabbath had been forgotten. So it's amazing if you just look at the language in Revelation chapter 10. Jesus, he's the mighty angel. He's coming down from heaven with the authority of heaven to raise up a new movement. Just as God raised up the movement of the Israelites to go from Egypt to Canaan, Jesus is coming down from heaven with the stamp of the authority of heaven to raise up a new movement, to take it from spiritual Egypt to spiritual Canaan. And he does so by using the sanctuary the way he did with Israel of old. He's covered with a cloud indicating that you will find Jesus in the most holy place. The throne is moving with him. A rainbow is above his head, meaning he is going to renew the covenant. And that covenant is his law that he is going to write in our hearts and minds. And and the Sabbath is especially the sign of that covenant because the Sabbath is the sign that God has sanctified us and made us into holy people from the most holy place. So you can see that Jesus is raising up the Seventh-day Adventist movement. People who keep the Sabbath and understand the sanctuary message based on their understanding of what Jesus is doing from the most holy place. And we haven't even finished verse 1 yet. This is how we need to study the Bible. So Revelation 10 talks about the mystery of God being finished. Revelation eleven nineteen talks about when the seventh trumpet sounds, you see in his temple the ark of his testament, that's the most holy place. When the Sabbath or when the covenant is renewed, the mystery of God is finished and the sanctuary is cleansed. Not only that, we see that his face shone as it were the sun. Malachi chapter four, verse two describes Jesus as the Son of Righteousness, who arises with healing in His wings. I like that verse, and it connects very well to raising the right arm. God is raising up a movement to proclaim the righteousness of Christ and to proclaim the healing message. And that's coming from the most holy place. God raised up the second Advent movement to raise up righteous people who are also healthy people. Does that make sense? God said to the Israelites, if you follow me, I will put on you none of the diseases I have placed upon the Egyptians. That's the message from the most holy place. Now, we live in a world of sin, and sometimes things happen, sometimes perhaps before we come into the faith, and we may have consequences from choices we've made before we came in, and God is merciful to us, and he takes us where we are, and we we follow him. But Jesus is the son of righteousness. So Jesus came to raise up a movement. 
to lead this movement to the righteousness of Christ so that we will shine like the sun. The righteousness of Christ is to be seen as brightly as the sun is seen. Jesus is the son of righteousness. So what we see in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 10 is that Jesus has come down from heaven with the authority of heaven to raise up a new movement, and it's based on an understanding that he is moving to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary because he's clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow is above his head, meaning that the throne is coming with him, and he's going to renew the covenant, which is his law, which is written in our hearts and minds. And in that law is the fourth commandment especially, which had been forgotten. So he raises up the second advent movement to help the world remember that the fourth commandment, the seventh day being the Sabbath, had been forgotten. And the Sabbath is important because the Sabbath is a sign of our holiness as a people, which is what God is working to produce from the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. So just from Revelation chapter 10 verse 1, you see the rise of the second advent movement, and the setting for that is in the time period of 1840, with the fall of the Ottoman Empire. That's pretty powerful to me. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty powerful. That's just one Bible verse. But that's not it. Let's keep going. His feet are as pillars of fire. We see that we already read Exodus 13, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was over the most holy place. It's just a re-emphasis. Leading a new movement to heaven through the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. Now we move on to verse 2. Revelation chapter 10 verse 1 describes the movement of Jesus into the most holy place of the sanctuary. But in verse 2, we see that he had in his hand a little book opened. Now, wouldn't it make sense that the little book that is open in the hand of this mighty angel would be describing what we just saw in verse 1, which is Jesus moving from the holy place to the most holy place. What book that had been closed has now been open to understand that Jesus is moving from the holy place to the most holy place? It's the book of Daniel. Now, some of the book of Daniel have been understood for centuries, but it's the portion of the book of Daniel had, that had been sealed, specifically the vision of the evening and the morning, or the vision of the 2300 days. If you understand how to prove verse 1 and the rise of the Advent movement, it becomes very easy to see how Re Revelation 10 verse 2 in the little book that's been opened is referring to the book of Daniel. Not only that, you see that because the sixth seal ended in 1840, the 2300 days of Daniel 8.14 takes us to 1844. So certainly that prophecy has great relevance for the timing of Revelation chapter 10. And based on verse 1, which is all about moving from the holy place to the most holy place, yes, you would expect to find a prophecy in Scripture that would identify the timing of the cleansing of the sanctuary. That's what Jesus is opening to the understanding of the world because he sets his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, announcing that this is a worldwide movement. Daniel 8, 14, and 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This is a worldwide message. Not only was William Miller preaching this message and the 200 Millerite preachers throughout America, but you had Joseph Wolfe over in Europe and you had others throughout the rest of this world. This message hit the world at that time. 
Friends, we aren't following cunningly devised fables. Adventism isn't an excuse to make up for the disappointment. Adventism is as true as God is living. Now, when you go to verses 3 and 4, there's a description of the seven thunders. He was about to write down what the seven thunders said, and then he was told to not write them. And in Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 971, Ellen White has a few things to say. The mighty angel who instructed John was no less a personage than Jesus Christ. Setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot upon the dry land shows the part which he is acting in the closing scenes of the great controversy with Satan. This position denotes his supreme power and authority over the whole earth. The controversy had waxed stronger and more determined from age to age and will continue to do so to the concluding scenes when the masterly working of the powers of darkness shall reach their height. Satan, united with evil men, will deceive the whole world and the churches who receive not the love of the truth. But the mighty angel demands attention. He cries with a loud voice. He is to show the power and authority of his voice to those who have united with Satan to oppose the truth. Now, Revelation 10, verses 5 through 7. We read, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. By the way, if you run into someone who's come up with a new understanding of prophecy where you have prophetic days turned into literal days where the 1260 and the 1290 and the 1335 are now literal days from the Sunday law until the death decree and then the second coming and all that kind of stuff they are in contradiction to Jesus who swore by an oath. Now in Hebrews 6, it says God, because he could swear by no greater, swear by himself when he made an oath with Abraham. And here Jesus, the mighty angel who is God, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. And in that oath, he says, at this point, there is time no longer. Now, if you understand Revelation chapter 10, this is Jesus moving from the holy place to the most holy place. The earth did not come to an end in 1844 but the prophetic time periods did. There is no more prophetic time after October 22, 1844 until the second coming of Jesus when there is silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. So if you run into a well-meaning brother or sister who is convinced that the 1260 and the 1290 and the 1335 or anything else is now literal days before the coming of Jesus, they are in opposition to the mighty angel Jesus who swore by an oath that there is no more prophetic time. I don't want to go against Jesus who sworn by an oath. And continuing, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God, should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now notice, as part of this oath, he swore by 
him who created heaven, the earth, the things that are therein. That connects us to the first angel's message. Worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. That connects us to the fourth commandment. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. We see the Sabbath again. We see it in the renewal of the covenant in verse 1. We see it in God as creator in verse 6. So God is the creator. There's no more prophetic time. We see in verse 7 that the mystery of God would be finished in the Advent movement. We understand. And over, Why don't you turn to Colossians 1 so that you can see this verse. Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to start in verse 25. Where have I made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God? Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus came down to raise up a movement who would be like him. He didn't entrust this work to anyone else, so he came down himself to raise up this movement as he's moving from the holy place to the most holy place. He's raising up a movement through whom the mystery of God would be finished, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if you keep reading Colossians 1, verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Christ in you. This is worth talking about for a minute. How does Christ come in? Galatians 2.20, it's one of the most famous verses to me in the Bible. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's the mystery of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So when Christ comes in, sin goes out, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I'm living the life of Christ by the faith of Jesus which is the third angel's message. Now, if Christ is living in me, am I living an obedient life or a disobedient life? I'm living an obedient life by the faith of Jesus because he's written his law into my heart and mind, which is the new covenant. So when Jesus renews the covenant, he says, Here how, here's how I'm going to renew the covenant with you. You surrender to me, I come into your heart, and I will write my law into your heart and mine, which is a transcript of my character, so that your character will be a reflection of me. And if you need grace and strength to get through the trials of life, since I'm living in you, you can lean on me to exercise my faith through you. That is the experience of the third angel. Not only that, Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 21 says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now notice verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, 
may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. You want to be filled with all the fullness of God? You know, Colossians 2.9 says of Christ in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, world without end. Amen. That's pretty powerful. That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith and you become then rooted and grounded in love. You know, again, having Christ in you doesn't simply mean you've stopped doing bad things. If you don't fill your life with the love of Christ, those bad things are going to eventually come back, and they're going to come back seven times stronger. I mean, if you're just walking around saying, man, I haven't done anything bad today. I'm tempted. Ooh, it's tough. I haven't done it, though. No, you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ and you're communing with Him and that you don't have room for the bad things anymore. John six fifty three through 56. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. We are in Christ, Christ is in us. Eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man means that you have a close, intimate communion with Christ on a daily basis. Christ in you, the hope of glory, isn't a one-time, once-saved, always-saved, magical experience that gets you through the rest of your life. You need to eat and drink every day to sustain life. And you're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of God, doing His will. Those who do His will are eating His flesh and drinking His blood. Interestingly, this connects to the Laodicean message. Christ is standing at the door knocking, saying, If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, when we let Christ come in, that is the mystery of God finished. When the mystery of God is finished, Christ is in us. We can overcome as he overcame, which is the message to Laodicea. And when that takes place, we are now ready to be sealed with the seal of the living God. Because as Colossians 2 says, in Christ dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is the purpose for the rise of the Second Advent Movement. Notice Review and Herald, April 21, 1891. The latter rain is to fall upon the people of God. A mighty angel is to come down from heaven, and the whole earth is to be lighted with his glory. So we start off with a mighty angel 
in Revelation 10, but now we see a mighty angel that's going to lighten the earth with his glory. That's Revelation 18.1. Are we ready to take part in the glorious work of the third angel? Are our vessels ready to receive the heavenly dew? Have we defilement and sin in the heart? If so, let us cleanse the soul temple and prepare for the showers of the latter rain. The refreshing from the presence of the Lord will never come to hearts filled with impurity. May God help us to die to self, notice this, that Christ the hope of glory may be formed within. Notice that when Christ, the hope of glory, is formed within, that means that we have died to self, that means the soul temple has been cleansed, and that means that the latter rain can fall upon the people of God so that Revelation 18.1 can be fulfilled where the earth will be lightened with the glory of God's character. Now think about it this way. This is amazing to me. Jesus comes down from heaven to raise up the second advent movement, and he is the mighty angel, and he moves from the holy place to the most holy place. And the second advent movement starts off with great power. But you, did you realize that the second advent movement is going to end with far greater power than it started with? You want to know why? Because when the second advent movement comes to its completion, you're not just going to have the mighty angel Jesus reflecting his character to the world. You're going to have the advent movement filled with Jesus throughout the world. That's why Jesus raised the second advent movement up. So that his character will be seen throughout Adventism, throughout the world, and that will that will harmonize with the mystery of God being finished. And yet there are many in the church today that say, we can never really be like Jesus. We can never really overcome sin. We can never really stop sinning. God's never going to write his law into our hearts and minds. And obedience is legalism anyway. And we wonder why Jesus hasn't come yet. God is waiting for a people who will allow the mighty angel Jesus to come in and for us to die to self so that Christ, the hope of glory, may be formed within. When the mystery of God is finished, the second Advent movement becomes the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals himself, yes, throughout the book of Revelation, but the, the final fulfillment the ultimate fulfillment of the revelation of Jesus Christ is when the mystery of God is finished in Adventism so that the character of Christ is seen in Adventism. Let me read a statement to you. This is from Great Controversy, page 611. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. The prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former reign at the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter reign at its close. Here are the times of refreshing to which the apostle Peter looked forward when he said, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus. That's Acts 3, 19 and 20. Notice this next paragraph. This is now page 612. Servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration 
will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. Did you hear that? When we have Jesus fully in our lives, he's going to give us wisdom beyond what we have now to heal the sick. And signs and wonders will follow the believers. Satan also works with lying wonders, even bringing down fire from heaven on the side of men. Thus the inhabitants of the earth will be brought to take their stand. Did you realize that the inhabitants of the earth are going to be brought to take their stand because Satan's going to be working miracles through his side, fire's going to be coming down from heaven, but God is going to have his servants, the 144,000, with their faces lighted up because the mystery of God has been finished in our lives, doing the work of Christ, performing miracles, healing the sick, doing medical missionary work. Because the mystery of God has been finished. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it now. If you're not doing it now, what makes you think you're going to do it then? Doing medical missionary work during the time of the loud cry. It's not just going to be saying, hey, did you know that Babylon is the Antichrist? And yeah, that's part of it. Because the angel from Revelation 18 cries mightily with a strong voice that Babylon is the habitation of devils. So, I mean, it's going to be part of the message. But it's not just a proclamation that Babylon has fallen. It's also going to be a demonstration of the character of Jesus. And it's not just not sinning. It's also healing the sick and helping those who need the help of Jesus. That is the culmination of Adventism. The culmination of the prophetic rise of Adventism is not a group, is not simply just a group who has stopped sinning, and yes, that is part of it. We won't feel that we've reached that point because the closer we come to Jesus, the more imperfect we feel in our own eyes. But it's not just that, it is also doing the works of Christ. That is what will culminate in the loud cry when the mystery of God is finished and Revelation 18 becomes a reality. Friends, you are part of a movement that Jesus himself raised up. And God wants us to surrender everything in our hearts and in our lives so that he can use us to be his face to the world. And I believe that the time is coming very soon that we will have an opportunity to make a final decision on whose side we are on. We are making a decision every day whose side we are on. And that final moment is coming sooner than perhaps we realize. May we be faithful to the Lord. May we look to Jesus, the mighty angel, and see what he has raised up in Revelation chapter 10 and say, Lord, I want to be part of this movement. May you come into my heart so that the mystery of God is finished in my life, no matter what is happening to anyone else around me. Stop making excuses for your unfaithfulness because your pastor or your favorite preacher or your friend down the street is doing things that are clearly against counsel. They're not going to stand for you in the day of judgment. You're going to stand before God in the day of judgment. And Jesus has given us everything we need to know to surrender everything in our lives to him. By his grace, may we do so. Amen. Let's kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the privilege of being part of the Second Advent Movement. 
And yet, through our study this week, we are ashamed to admit that despite such amazing potential you have entrusted us with, we are the Laodicean church that are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Lord, help us to allow Jesus to come in so that we can do the works of Jesus. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, do the work that God has given us to do, to have the character of Jesus in our lives. May we be rooted and grounded in love. May we be filled with all the fullness of God. And may we be among those servants of God that when the latter rain is poured out, we will be those whose faces are lighted up, hastening from place to place to proclaim the last message of warning to the world. Help us to use the time remaining that you have entrusted to us to prepare for what is coming upon the world. And may we be ready when that day comes, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.